Um, my first um, association with the IMA um, and with contemporary art, if it comes to that, um, was when I was the treasurer back in 1988. And um, board members at that stage were required to sit the gallery on Saturdays. Um, that was part of the function of a board member, to sit in the gallery and mind the gallery on Saturdays. So the previous um, meeting, um, we had an issue. It was a building in, um, in Edward Street and water had leaked through the ceiling and it had damaged some of the works, um, including a couple of paintings by Robert McPherson. Um, so there was a great big argument going on about who was responsible. Was it the landlord? Was it the IMA? Um, who was going to pay? What were the insurance matters and things like that? And um, so the meeting sort of moved on to other things. And a couple of weeks later, it was my turn to gallery set. So I walked in, and there's this guttering along the back wall. And I thought to myself, well, that's a, <coughs> that's a pretty stupid idea. I mean, if you're going to have guttering catch the rain, at least put it up. Don't put it halfway down the wall because if it's, you know, it's defeating the purpose of it. It's not going to catch anything right down there. So I got up to walk over to see if there was any water collected in the guttering and here are all these little blue triangles. Ah, this is a piece of contemporary art. <laughs> so the next time when I was rostered on and there was a desk with books and rubbish falling off it, I didn't even question whether someone had forgotten to tidy up. Um, but one of the, um, one of the, probably the, the, the best thing about my um, period as the treasurer of the IMA was that it, it introduced me to um, contemporary art specifically and art more generally. And um, I started to, because I'd been asked to be the treasurer, not because I had any interest in art, but because I was an accountant, you know. And I had a few artists who were clients, so um, I got roped into being the treasurer, um, but had not really become involved in the art world in terms of going to exhibitions and things like that. Um, but which I now started to do because I felt that that was incumbent on me, you know, to know something about the art world, um, as well as the money behind it. And um, the more I became involved, and at that stage it was just like going to student exhibitions. In fact, the very first piece that I bought was a, a Queensland College of Art graduating show um, down at Riverside and in fact I, I saw a piece that I really liked um, and I searched out the artist and I said you know is it for sale and she said yes and I said how much she said I don't know she said I have I've never sold anything before and I said well look think about how much you want give me a call tomorrow here's my number give me a call at work next day no call Next day I rang I said, Gail, I said, you were supposed to phone me yesterday. I said, how much for the painting? And she says, oh, $100? And the upwards inflection tells me that this is a question, this is not a statement of fact. And I said, Gail, I would be robbing you blind at $100. I said, it's $300 and that's now your starting price. Got it? Mm -hmm. She said, yes. My son phoned me, my younger son phoned me um, a couple of years ago, and um, Dad, Sarah and I have just moved into a new flat in um, Sydney, and we've got no art on the walls, and we're just wondering whether we can borrow some of yours. And I said, no. <laughs> Dad, you've got hundreds and hundreds of paintings and photographs and stuff. He said, we'll pay to get it down, we'll insure it, we'll look after it. And I said, no. And he says, why not? Why not? And I said, Luke, I said, if you want art on your walls, there has to be an investment by you. I said, and I'm not talking about a financial investment. 
I'm talking about an emotional investment. I said, what you and Sarah have to do now is start going to exhibitions. I said, start going to end of year student shows, go to exhibitions of photography, sculpture, paintings, prints. Just go and look and see what's on the walls. And I said, do this for maybe six months, a year. And I said, after that, you will start to get a sense of what is appealing to you and what is not appealing to you. And once you've established what sort of work appeals to you, then you start focusing on exhibitions that concentrate on that. I said, along the way, I said, you might find works at a student show. I said, $100. I said, ridiculous money. I said, you know, that's where you start. You start buying pieces from student shows, from exhibitions. You've got a tight budget. I said, but get a sense of what you like. And I said, it really took me a year. And it wasn't a conscious searching for what I liked. It was more a sense of just looking at stuff and saying, yeah, I like that. Well, no, that doesn't appeal to me. And it got to the, you know, I got to the point within a couple of years where I could go into an exhibition and I would know within 10 minutes whether I was going to buy anything or not. Um, because works start to leap out at you. People say you fall in love with a work of art. And I've often said, no, that's not what happens at all. I went to um, a Luke Roberts exhibition at the old um, Peter Bellis Gallery. And um, after an hour or so, mostly just chit-chatting, I was going out and Peter said, you haven't bought anything? I said, no. I said, nothing appeals. Nothing's appealed to me. And he said, oh, that's strange. He said, did you, go, did you have a look in that back room down the back? And I said, which one? He said, Up the, upstairs, down the hall, and to the left, there's a little room, there's a couple of works in there. Oh, no, I said, I didn't get down there. Um, so I went upstairs, down the hall, to the left, and there was a painting um, of Luke's little sister, dressed up in a geisha costume for a fancy dress party. And that geisha looked at me and said, Brian, take me home. I will make you happy forever. Um, and I did, and it did. Um, but the piece is like pieces are sitting on the wall and they're eyeing us all. They're looking at you and they're saying, I want to go home with that person. Um, so the connection is two ways. But it's a connection that you've got to just let sink in. And um, I suppose one of the, the greatest comments that I've ever, compliments that I've ever had, um, is that I was at an art set, I was at the um, Desert Mob art show in Alice Springs a few years ago, and I was talking with a group of people and there was a couple of art centre managers there, and one of them said, what do you think about this particular work? And I said, look, it's more what you think about this particular work. And the art centre manager said to this person, as if to give me some sort of validation, she said, Brian's been collecting Aboriginal art for 20 years now, and he has a really good eye. Now, I wouldn't have said, I've got a really good eye, but, but I've, I've developed a sense of what works. So my collection is works on paper, prints, um, acrylics on canvas, oils, photography, sculpture, furniture, beanies, fabrics, um, jewellery, artist books. Um, and even though it sounds like a huge great mishmash of everything, it works. Um, but it only works because it's my eye that's actually been selecting it and buying it. And I had an exhibition at Kick Arts Gallery in Cairns a few years ago, and there was about 80 works from the collection. And um, at the opening night, I said to the people there, I said, imagine you're a work of art and you've been, you know, you're in an exhibition and someone has bought you and you've been bubble wrapped and you've been taken somewhere. 
and you've been unwrapped and someone's taken a photograph of you and then you've been bubble wrapped back up and then you've been put on a shelf and there you sit. And then sometime later, maybe years later, you're taken off the shelf, Ooh, taken off the shelf, the bubble wrap comes off, someone's taking a photograph, someone's writing on a clipboard, then you're bubble wrapped up again and you're put on the back of a truck and you think, oh my God, what's happening now? So you're bumping along the Bruce Highway um, and then you're out of the truck and the bell wraps off and another photograph and another bit of clipboarding and then you're up on a wall and you think, oh my God. And you look around and you say, Glen O'Malley, my God, I hadn't seen you for, <laughs> it's got to be 10 years. And there's Shaney over there. My gosh, Shaney, how are you? I haven't seen you for years. And Gemma, your sculpture, oh God, you're so beautiful. I have, but all of these, and that's what I said, all of these works talk to each other. And they talk to each other because they're works that have spoken to me at some point. And it's that sort of passion that won't, I mean, if you're really, really fortunate, it'll happen almost overnight. But in my case, with no background in art, it took me, you know, a year or more to start to develop that love of different art forms. And it could have been a student show um, just next door to where Jan Murphy Gallery is now, where I bought eight works in one night. Wow. Student works, you know, $250. Two young students came up and said, oh, this is the first piece. Can I get a photograph of you and for my collection, you know, which I'm delighted to do and I hope they go on to be really successful. But when you buy works of art, as I, as I often say, you are doing two things. First of all, you are enriching your own life, you know. You are making the world a better place for yourself, you know. My house has got probably 300 works, all professionally hung, by a curator so that they talk to each other. There's a symbiotic relationship between every work that's on the wall, whether it's a work by Vexter, who's a Melbourne-based graffiti artist, or whether it's an artist from, you know, the Central Desert by an old artist who's passed away, you know, five years ago. Even though they're two completely different genres, they still have this ability to communicate and talk to each other. And that process is enriching my life, you know. But equally, and perhaps even more importantly, you're actually validating the work of the artist. So that your act of actually buying something is affirming to the artist that they are doing something right. You're validating their practice. And, and as I've, I've often said, you know, for many artists, emerging artists, and particularly artists who are working on remote Aboriginal communities, whether it's in the central and western desert or whether it's in Arnhem Land or the Tiwi Islands, you're actually also putting food on someone's table. Um, and that's, you know, that's just so rewarding that you know that you're helping people as well as helping yourself. So when you go to an exhibition, really you've only got two questions to ask yourself, one, do I like it? Two, can I afford it? And the questions are asked in that order. My son, Matthew, rang me up this afternoon. Oh, and he sent me some images of some photographs. He said, oh, Dad, look, I'm really, I, I, just, look, I just want your opinion on this, this, this photograph that I'm thinking of buying, you know. Um, now, when he says to me, I want your opinion, I can immediately tell that he is undecided. You know, he wants someone to validate this particular purchase. And I said, Matt, it's a great piece. And he said, yeah, he said, it, it's, really, it's, it's really good, you know. He said, and Nicole, she sort of likes it. And it'll, it'll fit on the walls. But after five or ten minutes, I can detect in his voice a questioning, you know. In other words, and I said to him, I said, Matthew, 
you don't, you haven't fallen in love with this, had you? And he says, well, no. He said, at the moment, it's maybe just the start of a platonic relationship. <laughs> um, but he said, really, I, you know, I just don't know whether to buy it or not. So then I said, Matthew, what's the price? And he, and he sort of took a bit of a gulp and he said, $17,500. And I said, in other words, you like it, but you actually don't like it to the extent of $17,500. And he said, no, it is a bit much. I said, if it was me, I don't, I mean, I wouldn't pay $17,500 for it. I said, but that's because, not because I couldn't afford to pay $17,500, or that would be a stretch, um, but because I don't like it that much. Um, but if some, I went to a Jan Murphy exhibition of nudes, and what drove me to the exhibition was um, was a work by um, Norman Lindsay, and it, I mean Norman Lindsay's works are just, they're frighteningly seductive. But this image on the invitation, and I can't remember the title, but the um, the model's eyes just, they were just captivating. So I went to the exhibition purely to look at that work. Um, and I would have bought it, no questions asked, except that it was $75,000. It's like 20 years ago. Um, so in some cases, money does have to be you know, a deciding factor. But if it's not, then the question is purely, am I in love with this work? And that's why, as I mentioned a while ago, I will generally know within about 10 minutes of looking at an exhibition whether I'm going to buy anything or not. Because the works leap out at me and they're saying, take me home, I'll make you happy forever. Now, this is a good thing and a bad thing because it, first of all it means that you know, you've, you've got to the point where you've got enough confidence in what you're buying um, to actually not reflect. You know, you, it's almost like this relationship is established in an instant. Um, and for many people, and particularly with contemporary art, and I've got some extremely contemporary art, um, one thing that I've found talking to young people particularly, it's, it's not that they aren't in love with the piece and they just absolutely want to have it, but they're concerned about what, what their family will think, what their friends will think, what their partner will think. Um, and it's almost as if you have to develop a thick skin. In other words, not give a rat's ass about what anybody else thinks. And, you know, my father-in-law, you know, died in the wool digger and all that sort of thing, you know, will never ever understand contemporary art. Client was in my office one day, and he says, Brian, he said, you know, 10% of what you've got on these walls, he said, I would take home tomorrow. He said, it is absolutely fucking fantastic. He said, really, mate, 90% of it is just shit. And, and then he sort of backed, oh, look, sorry, look, you know what I'm like, you know. I said, Norm, don't worry about it. I said, because the next person that comes in will say, 10% of what you've got is just fantastic. But do you mean to tell me you actually paid for the other 90%? But I said, his 10% will be different to your 10%. Mm. And the only person for whom 100% of it is perfect is actually me. So from your point of view, if, if you're in that 10% and this is what you really, really want and like and love, then that's, the, if, as long as you can afford it, of course, then that's what you buy. And what you'll find is that over time, that... And it might well be that you concentrate on a particular form. I, I was taking part in a, an old, um, used to be Craft Queensland, Queensland Craft Council, years and years ago. Um, and they had work by collectors. Um, and there was about five collectors, and every other collector had, like one had just bow ties. That was all he collected, was just bow ties. Um, antique bow ties, modern bow ties. Mine was the only one that had a bit of furniture, painting, print, and things like that. So my 
collection is eclectic in the sense that it encompasses just about every art form, whereas others will just concentrate on, you know, it might be paintings, it might be photography, it might be prints, it might be prints of a particular style, it might be, you know, charcoal. Um, but whatever you decide on or whatever takes your fancy is fine. That's you and that's what drives you pardon me, in your collecting process. Now there's a few things that I sort of should say and that is that, that I learnt and I learnt far too late was that you don't just buy stuff and put it away or hang it on your walls, you actually make sure that you also keep all the paperwork. So after I'd been collecting for about 10 years, Craig Douglas, who used to be at QCA, said, Brian, he said, you know, you really should start documenting your collection, what you've got, because apart from anything else, it's a good historical record of, of emerging artists in Brisbane over the last, you know, 15, 20 years. Oh, yeah, yeah I must do that. So I got someone and he started to document it, and then he and his partner moved down to Adelaide, so that ground will halt. Um, another young lady who used to run Gladstone Regional Gallery, she took it on um, and then she retired and disappeared and that was the end of that. And it was only when I was really pushed that I engaged um, you know, a lady that used to run Regional Galleries Association, Julie Foster Burley, and I got her in to come and document it. It took her two years um, because she had to, you know, there was no paperwork. So she had to first of all identify the work and who the artist was, then Google the artist to try and find out what exhibitions they'd had and which exhibition this might have come from, and then try and find out how much I might have paid for it, um, and then photograph it and describe it and do a condition report and put all of that into a database. So it took her two years to get that done. But uh, once that was done, then every time I'd buy something, she would enter it into the database. If it was an indigenous work, she'd make sure that I'd got the certificates of authenticity and all of that sort of thing, and she'd keep that. So she finished up with you know, two filing cabinets. One's got all the artist details with all of their exhibition um, history and their practice and their professional development and everything else. And the other one was for the artworks. Um, so that the works were then divided up into you know everything from baskets to photography to um, all and the advantage of the software was that you could also categorise things um, very specifically. So if I wanted to do an exhibition, for example, on text-based works, she could just call up all the works which were text-based. So there'd be everything from Scott Redford to you know all sorts of all whose works have been classified as text-based. Um, artist books, you know, whether it's, um, um, you know, a book of prints or a book of paintings, uh, sorry, a book of photographs, all, it's all documented. Um, so the first thing that I say to you is just don't do what I do. From day one, you keep all of the paperwork because 20 years down the track, that's, that's an archival source of information on its own. The second thing that I say is that you should, like if you're in your 30s, 40s, 20s, whatever, and you've got, you know, 20, 30 works, that's, that's fine. But if you get into your like 60s and 70s and you've got 1,200 works, you've actually got a problem. <laughs> because what do you do with 1,200 works? Like underneath my house we have an area half the size of this space here which is just artwork. It's just in, it's in, it's bubble wrapped, it's on racks, it's on shelves, um, it's boxes of prints, um, just, it, I've got four children. If I said to my children you could each take 250 pieces, Luke say, Dad, we've got a little two-bedroom house in Bangalore. Where are we going to keep two? And like some of these might be a Brian Robinson crab, which is that big, 
Some of them are big sculptures. Some of them are baskets, which require specialist sort of storage. All of them need to be in an area that's dehumidified and climate controlled. It has to be secure. So this is a problem that I'm now dealing with, and I'm I'm burying my head in the sand at the moment. I haven't I haven't resolved that. But you do need to have you know a long-term plan if like me, the, the, the collecting passion just starts to take over your life. Um, because then you'll just, you know, you won't buy everything you see, but everything that you see that you love, you will buy if you can. And I often used to joke, you know, I didn't take a holiday for over 30 years. I worked six days a week for 30 years without a holiday. I never took any holidays. I never went overseas. I still got the same car I bought in 1996. We still lived in the same house for 40 years. So where other people are sort of turning over their cars and getting a new one and upgrading their houses and getting a new one and going on overseas holidays, I just, all of that was churned into the purchase of art. And I don't know how much, I've probably spent, I don't know, $800,000 over 40 years. Um, but I have got now what, you know, I think, and it's purely for me, is, you know, I've got everything I want in terms of art. I could, you know, we've got, you know, two, three hundred pieces in the house. We've got a hanging system installed. I could say to Julie, okay, I want um, landscapes and indigenous works. She could take everything down and hang 200 works of landscapes or and or indigenous works. Um, and I would be equally thrilled to be looking at that every day as I am looking at what I've got every day. There are very few pieces that I would, um, you know, just willingly and gladly part with. Um, and they generally tend to be works that I've bought not because I've been to an exhibition, but because an artist has come in and said, oh, you collect art, don't you? And I said, yep. And she says, um, would you be interested in buying one of my works? And I said, yeah, sure. So I'm looking at it, and then she mentions that she's really got to get a rent paid. She's behind in the rent. So you say, okay, I'll buy it. Young girl came to see me at the Arts Law Centre of Queensland one night. She said, oh, you collect art, don't you? And I said, yep. She said, can I show you my works? And I said, yep. She came into the office after work one day with her portfolio, young Aboriginal girl. Um, she walks in and she says, you're not going to like what I've got. And I said, you don't know that. Open it up and let me have a look. And she said, no, you're not going to like it. And I said, no, please, please, let me have a look at your work. So she opens it up, she flicks it through, and she says, what do you think? And I said, you're right. I said, I don't like it. Um, but I said, that's not a reflection on you. I said, that's a reflection on me. I said, for every Brian Tucker that doesn't particularly like your work, there are 999 other people that will think that this work is absolutely amazing. All you've got to do is find one of those 999 other people. Um, and I, she knew why I wouldn't like it, and that was because it was, it was melding Aboriginal motives with like a new age theme. So there's like dots, and then there's a dolphin flying across the sky. Um, now that will appeal to some people, but it didn't actually appeal to me. But you should not apologise for not liking something. It's like reading a book. I did um, I do book reviews on my Facebook page, and um, and a couple of books I have said you know this is just rubbish, you know rubbish, don't like it. But the next person will think that it's absolutely a fantastic story. So it's all very subjective, and you need all you need is that I and the confidence 
to know that your decision is the only decision that counts. It's only your opinion that matters. And, and as I sometimes joke, you know, if someone thinks the work is really rubbish, your stock answer is, well, I'm sorry you don't like it, but I have been told that this will be a fantastic investment because that will shut everybody up. Um, now, someone sort of mentioned that I'd run out of time. Um, so, what I was, if anyone has got any questions, I'm happy to answer any questions that you. Big pardon? I do. Oh, good, good. I think one of the things I struggled with, I started collecting art when I was like 23, and I kind of went like quantity over quality. Yeah. And I feel like now as I'm getting older, I'd rather buy less pieces than buy better pieces. That's true. What do you think, what's your opinion of that? I think that's very true. In fact, Julie, um, who looked up after the collection, she, she maintains that she can, she can tell the development of my eye yeah. over the years and she can tell what I would have bought 20 years ago compared to what I would have bought five years ago. And she said, your eye has become much more discerning, unknown to me, but she said your eye has become much more discerning over the last 15 years than it was in the first you know, five to 10 years of you collecting. Not that I didn't love the work that I was collecting, but I didn't have that degree of perception of what was really great art. Um, it was appealing to me, and I think I was buying it, maybe not for necessarily the right reason. I liked it, and I wanted to support the artist as a young student, you know. Um, and a lot of that work that I bought, it's probably the sort of work that if I looked at it now, I probably wouldn't. That doesn't mean that I was wrong when I bought it then, it just meant my eye was different, um, my perception was different, and perhaps my focus was a little bit more scatterbrained than it sort of became over time. And over time I became more able to sort of recognise things that appealed to me in a deeper sort of sense than more superficially. I feel like I bought like 20 million things for $50, whereas now I wish I bought one thing for $20 million. You know? yeah. <laughs> Not that I have $20 million, no. but you know. I think exactly right. Now I've got a lot of artwork that I don't necessarily want. Yeah. And it's just kind of all under my bed. <laughs> yeah. I, um, stuff that I've got, um, you know, I will give away. Mm. Yeah. Um, not because I don't like it, but because I don't like it enough. <laughs> Um, and also because I've got, I've got to start divesting myself of some of the works, you know. I, I mean, it's a problem that my children will have, not me, but I wouldn't like to leave them with a terrible problem. I mean, it's, it's crazy. Yeah, me too. But, you, but they, they also need to be careful, as I was just saying to the son who's up from Bangalore, I said to him yesterday, I just showed him a little copy of Under Milkwood, which is a little book by Dylan Thomas about um, you know the nighttime happenings in this little Welsh town called Milkwood. I bought it, I don't know, probably 30 years ago, $300, which I thought was a lot of money at that time. It's a first edition with a review from the Yorkshire Post tucked into it, and it's now valued at like $3,500. So what I'll have to say to my, look, don't send my 3,000 books to Lifeline because <laughs> someone is going to be profiteering and it won't be Lifeline. Do you think there's much of a secondary market? Like, have you thought about selling your works on the secondary market? And um, I did have, I had an, an auction um, a couple of years ago, which was a, a horrifying experience. And you do need to, I didn't do enough homework. Um, and to give you an example of how it was held on a Saturday, Sunday night at 5 p.m. when everybody wants to go home and watch TV and have dinner. Um, one work that was sold was a David Larwell 
which had cost me, I think, $13,000. Um, it was sold at the auction for either what I paid for it or a little bit less, which I thought was just crazy. Uh, there were two hazel doonies um, that I bought that were sold for what I paid for them. And there was um, some other works that were sold for less than what I paid for them. Um, someone said to me a couple of weeks later that she had a David Larwell and how pleased she was with its current valuation. So I googled David Larwell recent sales and lo and behold, old pups, you know, I can't remember whether it was Sotheby's or Deutsche Menzies, um, but the work that had been sold at my auction for like $12,000 had been resold a month later at Deutsche Menzies for $23,000. The Hazel Doonies had both been sold for, one was for twice what I'd got, the other one was for two and a half times. There was, it was just, I was just, yeah. I mean, it wasn't that, it wasn't the money, it was the fact that someone had taken advantage, you know. Someone had seen them, had seen the prices, that the expected prices, which I'd maintained at the time were far too low, and they thought, here's an opportunity to make a quick buck, double the money in a month. Big pardon? It seems that your great motivation for collecting is A, to support artists and that these works are enjoyed. Mm. Absolutely. You know. So, yeah. in that respect, it seems that selling on the secondary market, but also a large scale donation to an institution, yeah. wouldn't fulfill either of those primary purposes? Um, I would probably sooner donate to an institution. Mm. At the same time, when you get these large donations to institutions, though, well, and this is the other thing, see, you know that they're going to be in storage and they'll only come out when they're doing a retrospective of Pat Hoffey or someone like that, otherwise it's just going to... You really want them to be seen by... And that was... The, the good side of the auction was that at least they went onto someone's walls who mm, loved it. it just, yeah, that's right. So, um, the ones that disappeared down in Melbourne, I've got no idea who they went to. Um, but um, yes, it's, um, it's almost like I can't separate that need to enrich my life and support someone else's because I've, I mean, I just have an enormous respect for not just visual artists, but particularly visual artists, but visual artists, writers, performers, musicians, dancers, whatever, um, because these people, um, they're putting themselves out there for criticism, for approbation, maybe acclamation. But they're putting themselves out there for public criticism every day. They, they could have an exhibition and sell nothing, you know. And if that was me, I don't know that I could handle that sort of, not rejection, but I would see it as rejection, you know. Um, and yet they'll front up and they'll produce another body of work and in a year's time they'll have another exhibition and hope that that one sells. And I think that um, part of the joy of, of actually buying is that you're saying to that artist on that night, yes, you are doing the right thing. Right, in regards to asset management, so you mentioned you have a data database. database. Yeah. Yeah. Paperwork. Yeah. I um, the piece of software that I bought, um, it was developed by Edith Cowan University, by um, an artist, and she developed it <coughs> for the university's collection, um, so that the university could keep track of what it owned and where it was and all that sort of thing, um, and they. They sort of modified a little bit and then started selling it to regional, small regional galleries, for small regional galleries in Western Australia to manage their collections. 
And um, Craig Douglas it was, he told me about it. So I got in touch with the developer and um, bought the software and paid for her to come over to Brisbane for a weekend um, and spend two days with Julie just going through. It's based on... Um, mm. It's based on a platform which I can't... I'm very... I can't even remember what it's called now. It's one of these platforms, like a database. Like FileMaker? FileMaker, that's it. Oh, yeah. Um, but um, it basically records for each... So each worker's got a catalog number. And um, what, um, what Julie did was um, she also... You can also have a location number. So all of the racks um, in the office were like C slash L1, C slash L2, C, M slash 1. Um, so every work was um, catalogued and its location was logged in the database so that if, um, you know, if someone wanted to do a, like Kick Arts wanted to do a collection, they could they can go through the database, pick out the works, and we know, and Julie knows exactly where they are in all of the shelving and everything. Um, so there are photographs of each work, um, and I think there's actually five photographs, so that if it's a sculptural piece, you can actually take, you know, images from photos from various parts of it. Um, a work on paper, you can do detail images as well as an image of the whole. Um, the dimensions, of course, the medium, uh, the title of the work, if it's got a title, um, the details of the artist, um, and then the artist has also got a code so that you can then click through to the artist and get their like history and things like that. Um, it's also got um, associated documentation for loan agreements. So when the stuff went off to kick arts or a work might have gone to, you know, the um, Catherine Regional Cultural Centre, they were doing a retrospective of a Daily River artist and they borrowed a work from the collection for that. Um, so you can do a, a loan agreement. Um, there's condition reports so that you can sort of tick the, in the condition report anything that's untoward, both when it comes in and when it goes back. Um, all of the invoices, of course, um, and if I've bought at an exhibition, I'll also make sure that I keep a catalogue mm -hmm. of the works that were on sale at the exhibition. Um, um, if there's a bio of the artist, I'll make sure I keep that. Um, if there's a, an artist book at the exhibition, I'll get a copy of that as well. Um, in short, I, I get every piece of paper that I can. Um, because that's, at the point of purchase, is the best time to get it. Mm. You know, six months down the track, it's starting to get harder and harder to get all of that information. But, um, you know, I'm sure there are, you know, like I bought this software 20 years ago, there's probably now far better pieces of software, but it should be able to do all of those sorts of things, you know. I just have a spreadsheet and a Dropbox. Yeah. Which is better than nothing, I think. Yeah. Well, I said to my daughter, Fiona, who works in publishing, I said, oh, Fee, can you give me, uh, can you recommend a software package for books? And she says, Dad, ever heard of an Excel spreadsheet? Yeah. yeah. And I said, well, yeah, but I want something a bit better than that. She said, no, I can't help you. <laughs> um, you know, I was, I can't bother helping you. Um, so I just Googled and I found this Dutch software and it's called Collectors. And it's got, like, you can do everything from music to, like, albums, but it's got a book collector. And the, the beauty about it is that you just key in the ISBN and then it pre-fills. Oh, and all you have to do is edit the format, whether it's paperback or whether it's hardcover or whether it's hardcover with a dust jacket, whether it's a hardcover with a slipcase, um, and uh, just everything pre-fills. And then you can track who's, who you've lent books to that never gave them back. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Sheet, which 
yep. that that's in Excel or I'll make a pro. But when tax time comes around, so for example, if you buy a laptop, it depreciates. Yep. We, like, because we work in the arts industry, we understand the value goes up. Yep. But as an asset, does the value of art go down during tax time? Um, I have always kept it at what it cost me. Um, I did get um, a curator and he did what's called a desktop valuation where he basically went through and, you know, and said, uh, the so the, the spreadsheet has got, you know, the cost price, which might have been, you know, $10,000, desktop valuation, $12,000. But that's more for insurance purposes mm -hmm. than anything else. Um, with the art centres that I audited, uh, because many of them have their own collections, archive stock, and I used to recommend that they should get that revalued every three to five years, five years at the most, um, so they would get hopefully some funding from National Library or somewhere like that, and then they would get someone in who would actually go through and catalogue, recatalogue, um, and revalue everything. But for tax purposes, works of art um, can be depreciated, I think it's a very low rate, um, but I never put my works into my tax at all, uh, apart from the couple of works that were owned by the superannuation fund. And that was that was almost on the the grounds that the less tax, the less the tax office know about my art collection, the better. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. I've never claimed any artwork or anything like that. For an individual, it, it would like I could only claim it if they were works that were hung on the office, hanging office, in, yeah. on display, and it's in the business premises. How many days? Like I could just bring some my personal. <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't be able to claim it here. You've got to be in business for yourself, so you can't be an employee. I do work a lot out of my bed with some of my. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I'd like to say yes, but yeah. But if you but at the moment, um, and I, I don't think it was on Matthew's agenda, uh, but there's like immediate write-offs at the moment too, so he could probably have bought that work and just taken it in the office and put it down as an immediate, like your laptop, you can just immediately write off the value of the laptop. Um, but no, I've never, um, I've never actually, apart from the Superfund pieces, on which I lost $100,000, so that wasn't a good investment. But that was because, as I said, I think that, you know, I'd been done over. Mm -hmm. And depreciation would be condition-based depreciation. So if you had your artwork in your office for the purposes of communicating your business needs or, you know, meetings or yep. whatever, and someone backed a chair into it and broke it, and that's depreciation through the business. Yep. Certainly you can depreciate works, and um, I never did. And none of the works ever showed up in my balance sheet as assets. Um, but I, I always maintained that an office that is packed with art, the staff will be more motivated, mm -hmm. happier than a work that's than an office that's devoid of any art. And um, the you know my staff and I had about eight staff when I was you know, in business, they they could go downstairs to Julie when she was in and say, can I change everything in my area? And she would go up and they might have portraits, you know, Debbie might have portraits, she might decide, can I have landscapes now? So Julie would take down all the portraits, she would go through the database and Debbie would pick out a dozen landscapes and up they would go. And staff knew that they could do that any time, whenever they liked. Um, and I think, you know, those employees were happy. They were just happy, you know, because there was something on the walls that was interesting and enlightening and enjoyable. And it wasn't just account certificates and things <laughs> like that. Brian, thank you so much. You really are a star and um, your collection and your store, your history of collecting and the passion for the arts is really inspiring and certainly something I look to as a collector myself. So 
Well, I would just say thank you for coming along. You know, and um, and and this is like a, a standing invitation. If anybody wants to come and have a look through my collection at any time, you know. Oh yeah, maybe we'll follow up with an IMA off-site public program. Yeah, I I just love showing it to people, you know, um, and um, the, as I've I've often I've I've always said, you know, I guarantee that with with what is just hanging on the walls inside the house, there will be something that you will love. It might be twenty beanies from the beanie festival. It might be a Luke Roberts. It could be a work from, you know, Harry Chipchuna from. Um, Desert community. Um, when Julie hung the Harry Chichuna work, I said to her, I said, um, you've hung it upside down. And she said, no, she said, I followed the, the um, protocol, you know, where something is on that and something else is on the bottom. And I said, you've hung it upside down. And she said, well, no, because she said he's, um, his symbol is the Spider-Man and there's a spider with its legs. And I said, no, he's also known as the three penis, as the penis man. And if you look down there, there's actually a man and his penis, but he, he's upside down. <laughs> oh, right, she says, okay. <laughs> um, but you had to know that, first of all, that that was Harry's symbol and secondly, that, that those two little dots were his eyes, and that was his arms, and there's his two legs, and there's what's hanging in the middle of his two legs. But I think the other thing that, that you know, I'm sort of rabbiting a bit, but the other thing that um, um, has been hugely rewarding is that I have had a personal connection with every artist whose work that I've got. I've known the artist, in some cases I've known them for 20 years. I was at one community and um, I was doing the audit on a Sunday and Joe says, do you need me? The art centre manager says, do you need me? I said, no, I know where everything is. You just, Sunday's your day off. Go and do your washing, you know. Um, have, a, have a day off, I'll be right. She says, okay, well look, she says, lock the door, because she said, there's a few kids in the community, if they know there's someone there, they could humbug you, you know. I said, I'll be fine, off you go. Anyway, at about 11.30, bang, bang, bang on the door. In the end, I thought, ah, oh, you never know. So anyway, I get up, open the door, and there's this artist, Iwi Wikileary, no teeth, 80 in the shade, and her husband, Ginger. And I just said, Ewe, oh, big hugs and everything. And um, we're sort of chatting, you know, in our broken Pitjantjara. And, um, you know, 50 minutes later, and off she goes. And um, when I got back to the house, Joe says, oh, did you have any visitors? I said, oh, Iwi and um, Ginger rocked up about lunchtime. And um, she said, yeah, said, oh, sorry about that. She said, they came round and they were hassling me to make them lunch. And so I said to them, you know who's at the art centre? Mr Tucker. And they just <laughs> took off. So. <laughs> it was a way of getting that. But, but um, I had a road case made um, to keep the files in, because I always had this fear that I was going to get off the carousel at Yalara or off the carousel at Brisbane and there'd be this plastic bin that had just cracked and there's just files scattered. So I had this road case built and Iwi, I commissioned Iwi to paint it for me and um, the next time I was out there and um, the manager said, oh, do you want to have a look at your road case? Iwi's just about finished it. I said, oh, yeah, yeah. So we went round to her, her house in Udijulu and the, paint, the top is um, like a dot painting landscape, you know, waterhole and, you know, waterways and things like that. 
and then on the side, the four sides were painted blue. And there's a set of footprints. And another set of footprints. And then they meet, you know. And on to the next side, and the next side, and the next side. And I said, um, so what's, what's the story here, Iwi? And she says, well, she says, you go to all the art centres to talk about the money story. And I said, yes. So she said, that's you going to the art centre, and that's the artists going to the art centre, and then you sit down, and then that's where you have your meeting, and then the next day you go to the next art centre, and then the next one, and then... I said, oh. I said, that's, that's beautiful. I said, but beside me, beside my footprints, you've got these, these other little prints, what are they? She said, oh, that's, that's your Malpa. She said, that's your emu, and your emu follows you around to make sure you never get lost. That's the sort of experience that I've been so privileged to enjoy. And that privilege extends to all art workers, you know, and artists, you know, it's just been the joy of my life, you know, and that's reflected in the art that I collect. Yeah. You know, and recording that conversation, yeah. Kiwi, and you know, it's not just the paperwork, but no. it's how do you kind of document That's, those relationships? Really people have been talking to me for five years now, Brian. You need to do a book, mm-hmm. you know, and you need to start writing these stories down, you know. I mean, they're solid in my memory, but you know, we run over by a bus, you know. But I'd really like to get, you know someone like Mick Richards or someone to just photograph 40 or 50 works and then the story that goes beside each of those works. I did a project with Griffith Uni a few years back, two curators, their final year. One curated um, a show with um, Logan Regional Gallery and one at Redcliffe Regional Gallery. Um, Peter at Logan did Flora, Fauna and Landscape and Emma did um, Indigenous Works at, at Redcliffe, and they were each uh, mentored by Tim Lynch and who was it? I can't remember who was at Logan at the time. But um, um, I went, oh, and I went to both openings, of course, but I went to the, uh, Fiona came out from London, and I, I took her up to the Redcliffe, to have a look at the Redcliffe exhibition, and there was a group of, um, um, they look like primary school kids there, and they each had their little catalogue, um, and they were looking at the works, and there were three works that, that the kids were just fixated on. One was three prints by um, an Ernabella artist, um, um, Nura Rupert, who did these images of what's called the Mamu figure, and the Mamu figure is our their equivalent of our boogeyman. So the works, the works didn't have a full description of the work. They had a description of what the work was about and my relationship with the artist. So this was telling these children that in Aboriginal communities, the children are fearful of the mamu in the same way that you're fearful of the boogeyman. And the mum would say, you don't go to bed. Mum will get you tonight, you know, you're hiding under the bed. Um, and the kids were just fascinated by that. The other one that they were fascinated by was a big work that I bought in Arnhem Land of a crocodile and a barramundi, um, just the x-ray sort of style, which they also found fascinating. But the other was um, a carved snake by Billy Cooley, who's also from the Mudijula community, and he carves snakes. And it was this sinuous, just carved out of a tree branch, snake. And they were just lined up to just... And I said to Fiona, as we were driving home, I said, you know, I said, if half of those kids go home 
and say, oh, Mum, Dad, you should have seen the show that we saw at the gallery today. It was terrific, you know, all this Aboriginal art. And if half of those parents followed the kids and went back and had a look at it themselves, that exhibition has done its job. Mm. You know? Yep. That's thank what you. I should stop. No, <laughs> no, thank you so no, much. No, thank you. Thank you.